90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Just hanging in as normal. <laughs> I mean, the, the proverbial poop hasn't really hit the fan. It's only the second week of the semester, but obviously, uh, obviously dropping the ball on some things. <laughs> Yeah, this show's coming out a little bit late because we didn't have an intro recorded on time, and I was on travel. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yes, so everything is on fire is the state of, of my world right now. <laughs> uh, where was this workshop at? Uh, this time I was in Jackson, Mississippi, and I mm. only have, I think, four more workshops coming up. So <laughs> Only four more. That's easy. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Mississippi in August sounds terrible. It was humid. <laughs> uh, but we had some folks from the National Weather Service there, so that was fun. Their office is in between the two runways at the Jackson Airport. Awesome. That's yeah. awesome. So that was interesting. <laughs> and got to, got to hear some stories about various things that have happened at their office and actually had uh, lightning strike a tree outside their building. <laughs> oh. oh from one of the afternoon storms coming through. Yeah. Shocking. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> shocking. You're welcome. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, it's been it's been fun and busy, but I'm excited to dive back into our planetary series. I know, even though it's not a planet, but it seems like it might be someplace we need to pay attention to after uh, interviewing our guests this week. Yeah, so last week we talked a little bit about Titan and thought it was really interesting, so this week we have a whole show on it. <laughs> So this week, we're excited to be talking to Mike Malaska, Master of the Titan Labyrinth, about Titan. <laughs> Hi, Mike. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on. So, Mike, could you tell us a little bit how you got into whatever you call your field? We've learned that if we call everything planetary geology, some people are very upset. Uh, so can you tell us how you got to where you are and a little about your background? So I just run with planetary scientist, and then that allows it to be all kind of nice and flexible. Um, uh, good, so good I call. started out as an organic chemist. I got an undergrad degree in chemistry, and then I did a PhD in organic chemistry, actually doing organometallic chemistry. Um, then I went more the medicinal chemistry route, looking to, for a future career in drug development, worked at the Mayo Clinic, did neurochemistry. Uh, was early on, we were looking at some of the possible therapeutics for Alzheimer's disease, but this was back in the 90s. Um, then I did a pharmaceutical uh, career um, for about 20 years. Uh, last part of it was working at a small company in North Carolina. Um, then I saw on an amateur website a couple of, you know, a couple of discussions, um, started kind of getting involved, interested. Uh, I saw some really cool images from Titan that had just come down from the Cassini mission. And I was learning just enough about geology to understand that the stuff that we were seeing at Titan was really kind of similar to Earth, but it looked very different. Like it was very, um, just had more of a, a different look to it. Um, so I started doing Im amateur image processing on a website called unmannedspaceflight.com, which is now a um, sort of a, a project of the Planetary Society. Slowly started getting sucked into it more and more. <laughs> um, began doing volunteer research, working with uh, Professor Janie Radabaugh, 
I went to a couple of actual planetary conferences on my own dime and started presenting posters, doing some work. Actually, it was a lot of the work was uh, looking at the Titan Labyrinths, which at the time hadn't been really discovered. Um, then started attending some of the Cassini Radar Team meetings. And then the next step up was becoming a volunteer solar system ambassador, which is a outreach program based out at JPL. And then eventually the career in pharmaceutical wasn't going so great because it was a small company. And so then um, when they had a few layoffs, I decided to make the transition over to becoming a, a senior postdoctoral research fellow here at a JPL. And then later on um, became a scientist and was officially hired here. Whew. So th there are so many questions. I know. <laughs> in there already. Exactly. I love that at any time in your life you can change your career. It is never too late. <laughs> that is fantastic. And by volunteering, huh? Is that really, I mean, is that something that you really feel got you to where you are? Yeah. And I would actually say like in between the transition between, I had like about eight months between, um, leaving the pharmaceutical industry and then coming to JPL, I ended up volunteering with the North Carolina Geological Survey. So I started learning the basics of um, basic you know, field geology, um, taking good notes in the field, and kind of an introduction to uh, geological mapping as well. So that helped out a lot when I came to JPL and then started thinking about how we would go about um, mapping Titan. I just want to make sure, John, that you heard that again, right? We have so many in our solar system series, Mike, that we've interviewed, which they all haven't aired yet, so you don't know. But so many people talk about the importance of field geology yes. in doing their research. And I think that's fantastic because that's what I do. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of it is, you know, it's, it's, you're seeing stuff from remote sensing. And then you get the ground truth when you go out in the field on Earth, and then you try to compare what you're doing in the field with what you've seen from some of the satellite images of that area on Earth. And then you try to compare that with whatever world you're looking at and saying, well, what would it be like if I was actually standing on the surface of Titan or Mars or the moon and try to relate what you saw on Earth to the, the, the satellite data to what you're seeing um, from the satellite data of other worlds? So it, working with satellite data, you mentioned that you were an amateur image processing enthusiast, which is not a common <laughs> hobby. Right. Uh, <laughs> so how did you learn some of these image processing techniques? So a lot of it was really actually very easy. So a couple of the missions here at NASA have started putting their images out there for the public to look at. So for example, um, the... Mars exploration rovers were putting a lot of the, the navcam images out on the web and letting people play with them. Cassini was putting a lot of the raw images when it was in orbit of, around Saturn and pictures of, of uh, Titan through the um, ISS camera. Also, the Juno spacecraft has a, a camera that was put on as just as a public outreach instrument, but they've gotten some beautiful images from that. And there was one camera that was put, it was an engineering camera put on the ESA spacecraft on the Mars Express uh, mission that was the Mars webcam. And that actually didn't have any science support at all. So they ended up going to the amateur community and actually posted on unmannedspaceflight.com and said, hey, look, um, we've got this camera. We don't have any real scientific support. If we 
put these images out there, could you guys make products just posted on the web for us? And we're like, sure. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's, 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 there is a community out there who are quite enthusiastic about taking some of the data, manipulating it, and then trying to make beautiful, pretty products out of it. So how do you take a, an image from one of these instruments and process it? What, what are some of the corrections or tweaks or adjustments that you have to make to make these final products? So there's actually a really nice kind of tutorial on the Planetary, Planetary Society website that Emily Lactawalla put together. And the images that she uses for sort of a tutorial is a picture of Rhea with um, Saturn in the background taken by the Cassini spacecraft. And you basically take the, the blue image, the green image, and the red image that was taken by the different color filters on the spacecraft, and then you just kind of combine them together. And you try to set the ramps and the little tweaks in Photoshop so that everything kind of balances out. And usually you do have to do a little bit of manipulation because you know, you're, you're bopping around in the Saturn system. So you have everything kind of in motion. So the moons are always kind of shifting, the background of Saturn is kind of shifting, maybe even some other moons that might be in the background field are kind of moving around. So you'll have to do a little bit of manipulating to, to get everybody to um, combine to make a decent mosaic. I love that these citizen science outreach things are so important to scientists, not just to citizens. Uh, John and I talk a lot on the podcast about you know, broader impacts and things like that you're supposed to talk about whenever you get grants and everything. And that is, this looks really extensive and I am super excited about getting involved in that. That's neat. Cool, cool. So is Photoshop the primary tool that you use for this work? Um, that was what I was using, yeah. And we did, so I started playing with some of the um, Cassini radar data that was um, put out on the Planetary Photo Journal. And I started doing some kind of data mashups of trying to combine some of the images from the infrared camera with the radar data, which, you know, you're looking at two totally different wavelengths and two totally different things. So it was kind of fun trying to see what sort of correlations you could do with those two data sets. I imagine that's... So you're getting experience doing this data processing uh, looking at all these different data sets and learning the tools. What drove you to Titan specifically? So I think it was actually the first image from the Huygens lander where, you know, it landed through this murky, hazy thing where they really didn't know very much about the surface at all. And you landed, and the first thing that you saw was these beautiful little cobbles all evenly sorted. And they're all kind of slightly tilted and imbricated, which suggests that you had some sort of a flow going on. So it's kind of cool that you're seeing a geology that looks basically like kind of a shingle beach here on Earth, but yet it's on this distant moon of, of Saturn, right? And so it was really kind of neat to think about how it must be very similar to Earth but then learning more and more, you learn how very different it is because we actually don't know very much about what it is that we landed in. I mean, we see these cobbles and we see kind of these, these dark sands. But at this point, we actually don't know for sure what those are actually made out of. It could be organics or it could even be, you know, water, maybe as waterized cobbles. But there actually isn't that much spectroscopic evidence for 
that those cobbles being water right there. We know that there must be water down there on the surface of Titan somewhere, at least underneath a, a mantle of organics, but just landing on a world and not actually knowing what it is that you landed on, I think is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> so when you say organics, we're talking about hydrocarbons, right? Uh, we're talking about hydrocarbons. I mean, you could probably get all kind of like uh, technical with it, but you have a bunch <laughs> of uh, hydrocarbons, some alkenes, some alkynes, some nitriles, um, small, fairly cute things like um, acetylene, hydrogen cyanide, acrylonitrile, <laughs> acetonitrile. I could just rattle off a whole bunch of names, benzene, <laughs> things like that that are down there. I love a cute cyanide. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I always joke that uh, I used to be a petroleum geologist for a very small amount of time, and I always joke that Titan was the only place that an engineer could find oil without a geologist. But, so, you know. <laughs> so I heard a really fun fact. I just love this. So we're talking about the amount of hydrocarbons that you have on the surface of Titan and also in the lakes, right? You have these huge lakes right. full yeah. of methane, maybe a little bit of ethane in there. And somebody said, well, what would happen if you grabbed all of that and took it back to Earth? You know, you'd have fuel for forever, right? And there's actually a problem with that. Uh, we would actually run out of oxygen. We don't have enough oxygen to burn all of those hydrocarbons <laughs> on Titan. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's impressive. It's only going to be so, so long before we just decide to tow that whole yeah. moon back here. <laughs> that's awesome. So there are all these organics and hydrocarbons. What about prospects for there being astrobiology on Titan? I know this is something that you're involved with, right? Yeah, so I'm currently the deputy principal investigator of a fairly large multi-institution uh, NASA Astrobiology Institute node. And our goal is to try to evaluate Titan as being an abode for life uh, the main difference is that we're probably not going to be focusing too much on the top surface of Titan, where you have these methane lakes and a lot of organics. We're a little bit more interested in a little bit down deep, because Titan is an ocean world, so it has a subsurface ocean. And we know that because of this atmospheric photochemistry that's making all of these organics on the top surface. So if there's any way that you could get some of those coolo organics on the top surface, down into the subsurface ocean through subduction or cracking or some type of mechanism, um, you might actually have a really nice place for life to exist, even though it's down deep in this subsurface ocean. And so maybe some of those materials might have percolated their way back up. And so we would want to know what types of instruments and what types of signatures we would want to look for if we ever went to the surface of Titan to look for life, and specifically life that might have been down in the deep subsurface ocean and maybe left some sort of a remnant trace that worked its way back up. So you said the, the secret word, which is subduction, because we love to talk about plate tectonics on here. <laughs> but right. I mean, we don't, we don't know a lot about Titan's, you know, interior structure or whether it has plate tectonics, correct? Correct. Yeah. In fact, we don't, okay. we don't see any strong evidence for plate tectonics on Titan. We do think that there has been some level of faulting and there might be some uh, thrust belt mountains on Titan. There might be some local basins that have dropped down, sort of a horse and graben type thing. Mm -hmm. Down lower from the upper top solid crust of, of 
water ice on Titan, there's probably a layer of kind of warmish ice that's able to move around and kind of convect very slowly. So if there's any way to get stuff from the very top down to maybe this convecting solid ice, you might actually be able to get stuff down into the ocean a little bit easier. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's real. As much it's, as convecting solid ice does. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> well, like a, I mean, glaciers move, right? So, you know, same sort of deal. Yeah, exactly. Right. And we, we see all this stuff. I mean, Titan's got a really thick atmosphere. So we saw all this stuff through the radar data, right? All these big mountains and horse and grabbing structures. Right. We have been able to use some really specific wavelengths of infrared light. The problem with Titan is you have this haze, which is going to scatter right. visible light and ultraviolet light. So that's no good. Um, and you might be able to use infrared light, but Titan's got methane in the atmosphere, and methane is a great infrared absorber. So there's only a few little narrow bands where we might actually be able to see down through the surface. And the Cassini spacecraft um, did carry a um, mapping hyperspectral imaging spectrometer that was able to penetrate down to the surface in a few of these narrow wavelengths. So we oh. do have some images of the surface in infrared. And then we also have the um, radar instrument, the, the dish of Cassini, that was able to basically send um, signals down, do some passive listening. So we've got some synthet synthetic aperture radar images of the surface as well. Hmm. So, you know, the atmosphere is always a, a limiting factor, no matter what kind of remote sensing you're trying to do. But with both of us having a, uh, a meteorological background, I'm always curious to hear a little bit more about it. So you mentioned that there was a lot of methane in the atmosphere. Uh, do we know anything else about the atmosphere of Titan? Right. So the structure of the atmosphere is actually pretty similar to Earth, where you have a troposphere and a stratosphere. Um, the main difference is that the scale height is really big. So you have uh, lower level clouds, maybe upper level clouds as well from uh, maybe organic materials that are condensing out. You have some really high clouds that look like they have some chemical components in it where you have some of these organic chemicals actually condensing out and making these really cool vortex clouds at you know, a couple hundred kilometers above the surface. And then above that, you have this very large distended atmosphere because Titan you know, it's, 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 it's a big moon, but it's mostly, you know, ice, so it doesn't have a huge amount of gravity. So the atmosphere on Titan, even though it's about, you know, at the surface, it's, you know, thicker than our atmosphere, like one and a half bar, um, it extends out like 10 times thicker than our atmosphere. So everything is just much bigger. Uh, one fun fact that I like to present when we, you know, give public talks is that, you know, Titan is the easiest place in the solar system to fly or to land and <laughs> if you went in the garage and built yourself a pair of wings and you could basically power your own flight uh through the surface of on the through the air of titan i knew i love titan so much that's fantastic <laughs> <laughs> that's super cool to think about i mean just don't touch the ground and get sucked into a methane lake but right you know. right <laughs> yeah i mean th that extended scale height i just <laughs> The, these very high and huge structures and the yeah. clouds that are not water vapor, but hydrocarbons and organics. It sounds pretty exotic. Yeah, they're probably so like the lower clouds that you would see making most of the weather are probably going to be methane clouds. 
um, that's going to be down on the troposphere. But then higher up, you're probably going to have some maybe small ethane clouds or ethane, you know, little nuclei that might be able to help seed some of the clouds that develop uh, down low. And we have seen some clouds on Titan, um, not as many as you would see on Earth, but every now and then Titan will go through some sort of a spasm and you'll have like a pretty impressive storm event. And we've actually seen surface changes on the surface of Titan where we see like large areas get, you know, wetted from methane precipitation and then it dries out as well over time. So we're seeing surface changes from some of these storm events. Don't they see dune movement, too, from the winds? So we haven't actually seen dune movement yet, but a lot of that oh. is because we just didn't have the resolution. So Okay. All right. Yeah. So with radar, we're seeing maybe like, you know, uh, 200 meters per pixel. So you'd have to have a lot of sand Those moving are big. around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really big dunes. But we do <laughs> see, you know, really extensive sand dunes that basically wrap around most of the world. It's, it's quite okay. impressive. Yeah, except they're not, well, they're like hydrocarbon sand, rethink, right? Yes. That's so strange to think about this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're, definitely, uh, they're definitely not water ice, and they're definitely not yeah. silicate, right? But they do seem yeah. to be some type of organic material. Uh, so that's so strange because when you talk about like dune dynamics on Earth, it has so much to do with like, you know, the rounded grains and the saltation and all that. Like how how does that happen with so much less gravity and with, these things that are you know god knows what shape right that's so cool to think about in terms of process geology so the thing that's really cool about the dunes is that we see these like linear structures on titan and we see kind of the way that they space and they work around objects and we can look at some of the places on earth and we do almost an exact match between the two places yeah. you know the same mm -hmm. scale same spacing and all that totally you know fascinating um even though you've got like totally different materials, totally different wind speeds, possibly totally different, you know, gravity field, temperature, mm -hmm. pressure, but it all behaves very similar. <laughs> I always say that, you know, because I have a, and John as well, meteorology and a geology degree. And so we're always like, it's the same physics. It's just a different time scale. That's what this reminds me of, that yeah. it's, it's the same <laughs> geological processy physics, different time scale. So we do see like, you know, the dunes behaving that way. We also see um, meander patterns as well on, on Titan from rivers meandering across the surface. And those pretty much seem to match um, what you see uh, for terrestrial rivers. So it looks like the way that rivers meander um, when they're freely meandering and kind of, you know, in a flat surface, it seems to be pretty much the same. The thing that is weird is that we see some areas of Titan that look like they are sort of like a dissolution terrain. So like kind of mm -hmm. sinkholes and pits. Yep. And the thing that's messing us up there is that everything that's these dissolution geology is about 10 times larger than the terrestrial counterparts. And that's still <laughs> kind of throwing us for a loop. We haven't figured that one out yet. So I, I want to talk about the, the sinkholes and the pits, but before we get there, you're talking about the rivers and the meandering. So there would be like oxbow lakes of methane on the surface. So we definitely see like a double-headed <laughs> meander. Uh, we've got a place uh, down on the South Pole called Celadon Flumina. Um, it's about the exact same size, shape, and pattern as the Mississippi River near Vicksburg, Mississippi. Like almost a direct wow. match. You you fly over, you <laughs> take a picture, and like, oh, yep, that's pretty much what it looks like. 
<laughs> Are we sure it's on Titan? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just making sure. Uh, yeah, this is so strange. Um, I teach this catastrophic sedimentation class and um, then associated with that, this extreme environments class. And we did a whole lot on Titan because of the, the similarities are just mind-blowing to me with such different material. Yeah. Well, we think different material, right? Yeah. Uh, well, we're really sure that it's definitely not silicates. Um, right, if there's yeah. any silicate, silicate materials on Titan, they would be way down deep in the, in the core. Okay. Um, though, so we're either talking about water ice, which is what we were thinking about you know, before, but now we're getting more and more data that's suggesting, that, wow, you know, a lot of the surface of Titan is really made out of this organic stuff. So we have these hydrocarbon rivers carving their way through uh, organic sediments. And it's, it's a very organic, rich place. So it's really cool because, you know, everywhere else in the solar system, we're, oh, we're looking for organics, you know, Mars. Oh, maybe there's a breath of methane. And then on Titan, you have like, you know, hundreds <laughs> of meters of this stuff, you know, just falling out of the sky and piling up. <laughs> and this so, is why we need a chemist to do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's what I've always said. It's like, you know, you know, Earth is for the biologists, uh, Mars is for the geologists, and <laughs> Titan is for the chemists. So this is our little world out there. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> so you'd mentioned hydrocarbon rain before, and now we're talking about hydrocarbon rivers and methane falling from the sky. What is the, I guess, equivalent to the water cycle like on Titan? So Titan has maybe like three liquids that it can play with. You have, um, well, actually four. So you have methane. Um, you have ethane, which we think should be the, the main product of photochemistry from, you know, sunlight hitting methane and breaking it down and reforming it. And there's also the possibility of having some propane and maybe a little bit of, you know, one butene, which is, you know, a four carbon chain, but it has a double bond in it. Um, and there's also a bonus, you know, player in here is when you have methane, um, methane loves to dissolve nitrogen a lot, up to about like 20%. So we think that most of the stuff moving around and evaporating and then recondensing on Titan is probably methane and nitrogen and for the ethane that gets made and kind of slowly falls down as little droplets it's pretty much a one-way trip for ethane although you know f over a really long period of time you might have climate cycles that would allow ethane to move from one place to another um, but for propane and butane they're so big and heavy and s such low vapor pressure that it's pretty much a one-way trip for those guys they're just going to plop down and land and stick wherever they are yeah, so it's kind of like Earth, but now you've got three different, well, four different liquids to kind of play with, which is fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm still trying to get my mind, like looking up these Huygens pictures, I'm still trying to get my mind around these things that look like rocks that aren't rocks, because they just look like rocks. Like, what kind of organics? This is so strange to me. Yeah, so it, I mean, it, it might be water ice, um, or it could be maybe some sort of organic, maybe like a sandstone type thing that kind of compressed down. We, we really don't know. Yeah, this is weird, weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I did a lot of research several years back into gas clathrates, and this is one of the places in the solar system where we think there are also clathrates, right? Right. So the clathrates are basically like a, uh, it's a water molecule that forms a little cage. And it's kind of stabilized by putting something inside it. 
So it, it's not a real chemical interaction. Um, so you can put like maybe, um, you know, argon or oxygen or, you know, methane or ethane. And, you know, you can put bigger molecules in there as well if you kind of modify the structure of the clathrate. But you can have, you know, water ice that holds these, these gases on Earth. You know, these might be some of the things that cause problems for people, you know, uh, doing hydrocarbon extraction from the bottom of the ocean. You know, they tend to kind of, you know, solidify and clog up some of the pipes. On Titan, there's probably a pretty dominant part of the water ice that's exposed is probably reacted with or interacted with, with methane and then formed these, these clathrates. One of the big mysteries of Titan is where the methane comes from because methane shouldn't be there because even though there's not a huge percentage of methane in Titan's atmospheres, you know, maybe 1% to 5% at the surface, but over time, sunlight should break it down and convert it into bigger, heavier molecules which plop down onto the surface. So something has to be resupplying the methane for it to have lasted all these years. Maybe there's like these pulses of methane and we just happen to catch Titan at a really good time for, for methane chemistry. Another possibility is that you have like these, um, these clathrates holding onto the methane in sort of the shallow crust. And then as you manufacture ethane, the ethane can be brought down to the surface and it turns out that ethane clathrate can exchange for methane clathrate. So you basically, you know, swap the, the methane in the cage for, for, for ethane. And then that'll release the methane. And when it does that, it'll make the ice clathrate a little bit denser and cause it to kind of pucker down. And we see sort of this puckering down up in the polar regions of Titan. So we think that maybe that's what's going on is that you have the methane, you know, being released from the clathrate, ethane getting, you know, hidden in there. And then the whole thing causes a slow sinking of the polar regions down a little bit deeper because they're now a little bit heavier. So it's kind of a really funky sort of deal where you might actually have, you know, the planet being deformed because you have this exchange of, of rainfall. And are, are these the sinkhole-like areas that are larger than what we see on Earth that you mentioned earlier? So this would be probably some of the, there's very broad polar depressions. Um, and so some of them are lake-filled, some of them are kind of empty. Um, but inside of that, we also see some high plateaus or even some just regular landscapes that are just chock full of these little uh, well, actually, they're fairly large, sinkhole-looking lakes. Hmm. Have we done this in the lab, this methane-ethane sort of swap in clathrates? That's real weird. So we've done some really even, even funner things in the lab. Um, so <laughs> we had thought that, you know, you have things like benzene and ethane and that, you know, on Earth, you'd have benzene and ethane and that would be, or that would be it. But it turns out it tightens really low temperatures that benzene and ethane will kind of associate with each other. Not really like a clathrate, which is all caged up, but this is more of a mm -hmm. co-crystal where the, the benzene makes little kind of like a chicken wire fence and the ethane can kind of slide in inside it. And so now you have this new type of mineral on Titan where you could have, you know, meth or uh, ethane associated with benzene. And that'll be different from just a pure benzene deposit. 
And we're doing a lot of work now looking at some of the properties of these titan, titan materials, such as their hardness, their crystal structure. So there might be a whole new field of titan organic or cryogenic uh, organic mineralogy that might be um, happening or starting to, to kick in right now. So it's really an exciting time for thinking about different materials at very low temperatures. And the so, more we talk, the weirder this gets. I just want to say. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the temperature ranges that you're looking at here? How, how cold do we have to get things in the lab to simulate Titan? Ah, right. So one of the funky things about Titan is you have this really thick atmosphere and you don't have a lot of solar heating or, you know, heating from the crust. So everything stays pretty much about the same temperature on Titan. So say a midsummer day, uh, at the equator with the sun right overhead is going to be about 95 Kelvin, which is maybe 20 degrees warmer than boiling liquid nitrogen. Um, the coldest you're going to get is probably, you know, darkest winter, middle of night, and that's probably at the poles, and that's going to be around eh, 89 to 91 Kelvin. So not a huge temperature wow. range on Kelvin. Yeah, not, a, not at all. That's impressive. For, so from pole to equator, is there a lot of temperature change then? Like only that five degrees pretty much. That's it? Really? Yeah, oh, and, and then you couple that with a scale height as well. So you don't have a lot of you know, temperature variation with altitude either. And, and Titan, by and large, is fairly flat. So you have maybe like at the most five kilometers of, of surface differential. It's not wow. not like Earth. Wow. So maybe not as interesting for a meteorologist. Uh, <laughs> well, there's those. Every now and then you'll have these like big spasms of, of weather and then you'll have, you know, huge flooding events. So I think that might be, you know, pretty exciting for a meteorologist. You know, you're kind of bored for most of the time. But when it cuts right. loose, man, it's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, monsoon season in the desert, I guess. Yuppers, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so when you're doing these experiments, do you do you cool your apparatus down with liquid nitrogen and just some kind of control mechanism and then uh, combine these different things and see how they behave? Yeah, or, actually. Well, what's your lab process? So like? what we do is we actually have sort of like a, a beaker and beaker type thing, we call it. Um, so the amount of volume that we're really cooling down is about a half coffee cup of hydrocarbon liquid. And we have a, a big vessel that has liquid nitrogen and then a small vessel with um, like a sort of a beaker that, you know, the liquid nitrogen is trying to cool that down. And then between the big beaker and the innermost beaker, we have kind of like a buffer region um, so that we don't want to cool it down directly, but we want to have some cooling. And then we have like a kind of a wire in there as well that we add just a little bit of heat to keep it slightly elevated above the liquid nitrogen temperature. And it turned out for our lab, um, one of the best things for conducting heat is going to be, you know, copper, steel, whatever, pennies. And so we basically ran up and down the hall shaking everybody down saying, hey, do you have any pennies? Yeah, okay. And then we used the pennies, we threw them in there with a little bit of sand and that was able to give just a, a really nice um, cooling um, gradient so that we could, you know, have an overall cooling down to liquid nitrogen temperature and then add just enough uh, heat with sort of a uh, controlled um, thermostat device to be able to keep it parked right at about, you know, whatever temperature we want, but right around Titan temperature. Overly honest methods. Yes. I yeah, like it. I know. 
<laughs> is this right next to your Mentos and Diet Coke beaker? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to miss out on this Magic Island thing. Should we do this now? Oh, like, I, sure. Where should we put that? Um, sure. So I'll tell you about the Magic Island. All right. Okay. <laughs> so we had the Cassini spacecraft. Uh, we were very interested in looking at the lakes. So we had a lot of flyover passes over the no- North Polar lakes on Titan. And we flew over one of the larger lakes, so one called Ligia Mare. And we usually fly over and we saw like a beautiful, beautiful lake with all of these really neat dissected islands and peninsulas. It looked really like, you know, the Greek arch- archipelago, you know, as you're flying over. Really pretty. Um, but on one of the passes, uh, we noticed something different. It was like a, an island that hadn't been there before. <laughs> and that was kind of curious. And then we flew over again and we saw it kind of disappear. And then we flew over again after that, like within a month or so, and it was completely gone. And we have <laughs> seen similar things in other bodies or other uh, seas of Titan, the other large sea of Titan, Kraken Mare. And so we had a lot of different ideas about what this could be. Uh, one of them was floating solids. Maybe we were looking at waves. Maybe we were looking at like hail in the atmosphere. Uh, maybe, you know, it was an instrument artifact. So we did a huge amount of work to uh, work out that, no, it was a real effect, that there was definitely something down there. It was not an instrument artifact. And one of the more exotic possibilities was that it was either, you know, frozen hydrocarbon liquids, maybe icebergs of methane or ethane, or possibly, you know, bubbles down there. And so uh, I did some lab experiments that showed that you cannot really freeze um, Titan hydrocarbon or the methane or ethane at low temperatures on Titan because they tend to mix with uh, nitrogen and that depresses the, um, the freezing point. So we were able to eliminate that one pretty quick. Um, And a lot of that had already been known as well. We just kind of confirmed it for exactly the Titan conditions. Uh, The one that came out as being still kind of a possibility is bubbles. And it turns out that methane absolutely loves nitrogen and ethane doesn't. So if you had, you know, these two liquids on Titan, maybe you had a lake, the methane all evaporated away and left behind kind of a ethane residual lake. And then you slowly layered on a Titan nitrogen mixture, uh, you might actually get a, a, a layering of the two liquids together. And I'll just throw out there that it, the density difference between methane and ethane is exactly the density difference between orange juice and grenadine in your tequila sunrise. <laughs> just throwing that out there. I, I was hoping for Guinness and Harp, or right. Guinness and Bass, but you know. Yep. <laughs> So it turns out that if you have these lakes, you know, layered uh, and everything's stable, it's kind of okay. But if you have any type of lake overturn, you'll get like this mixing. And then all of a sudden you'll have this massive release of all the nitrogen. And it's, it's, we did the calculations and it can be actually really an impressive amount because nitrogen will go from being, you know, um, in the liquid to suddenly becoming a gas and coming out of solution. And you'll get a very large amount of bubbles being produced, and that might have been enough to explain the, um, the signal that we saw on the radar. So that's still a, a possibility, even though it's kind of an exotic uh, concept. I mean, so, it, does the bubble stick around? Is that why you would have seen 
it on multiple flybys or so it might have been kind of like a continual release as you just had sort of like like this kind of okay it would mix and then it was almost like uh almost turned into almost like a runaway you know bubble type machine where a little bit of mixing <laughs> would make it more violent it would just kind of spread from there hmm. so the other thing so these are n- nitrogen bubbles in a ethane ethane methane mixed lake yeah lake okay yeah wow <laughs> and so the other thing that it turns out that's kind of interesting as well is that the amount of nitrogen that's contained um, varies with temperature. So at lower temperature, you can have a lot more nitrogen in the lake. At warm temperature, not so much. And it turns out that this effect will actually thermally buffer the lakes more than you would expect. Because as you try to put heat into the lake, um, the nitrogen will be released and that'll suck away the heat. And if you try to cool the lake down, it'll absorb the nitrogen, and that will actually release heat. So it's going to act a lot like um, uh, ice with some, or a, a, a glass of water with some ice in it. When you try to heat it, you'll melt the ice, and if you try to cool it, you'll end up refreezing the ice. So you have this really cool buffering effect of Titan lakes, much more than you would normally expect. It's weird. Yeah, that's <laughs> similar to... Clathrates too, right? They have a, a an endothermic exothermic buffer like that. Yeah. Huh. So, so bubbles are one explanation, and then the bubbles stopped at some point, and that's when you saw it go away. But what about the idea of solids that were floating around? Yeah. So some of the possibilities might be you could have had a local landslide event, and maybe that carried some stuff out into the lake, and so. You know, again, Titan seems to be a fairly dynamic place. So landslides or maybe large flood events that would carry some stuff, you know, floating around. It was a lot of different ideas still out there that we're trying to work down. And we unfortunately don't have the data to be able to really nail it down anymore. So, we'll, you know, just have to go back there and check it out. Right. <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, is anything planned for Titan? So there is, there was a New Frontiers competition, and one of the missions that was selected to go forward was a Titan octocopter drone that would be able to fly around on the surface of Titan. Uh, There was a orbiter mission that had also been planned, but that unfortunately didn't make the cut. But there is, you know, one of the two missions still in contention that is a Titan mission. And so we're hoping that that would give us a chance to go back to Titan. What are you up against? Uh, we're up against a comet sample return mission. Ah. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. These are both, <laughs> they, well, these are both really nice missions and have a lot of great science that would come out of it. So, I mean, uh, it would be really neat if true. both of them could go or all of them yeah. could go. But, yeah. So true. It's tough. <laughs> all right, I think about half of our listeners joined me in asking about, are you hiring for the octocopter design? <laughs> 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 That's not my call. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see what happens after it gets selected, I think. <laughs> I think, Don, did we talk about that on here? I think we did. It was one of our fun papers. We talked about the, the trouble of trying to make octocopters in different gravity situations. I believe so. I remember a paper. It was a feasibility study. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I wonder if that was. So there have been actually several one. missions planned to Titan. Uh, one of the first ones that I got involved with was as a concept artist um, for a aviator 
a volunteer concept artist. I'm at it and right, for a um, <laughs> volu- for a uh, uh, it was a nuclear powered uh, aircraft that would fly on Titan for a duration of you know one or two years, and it would have a series of cameras and another simple series of uh, uh, instruments that would be able to detect some of the weather patterns, rainfall, for example. And so that was uh, one of the early missions planned and or kind of worked out as a concept. But it was a very compelling mission just because Titan is so incredibly easy to fly. It just makes perfect sense to do airborne exploration. Hmm. That's that's awesome. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't want to get buried in a hydrocarbon dune if you land. So, you know. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, how fast? I have to go back to this. Like, how fast do they think these geological processes happen then? I mean, they're similar to Earth, but it's this weird, different material. But you still, do you actually see, you've got these pictures that look like the Mississippi River, but do you actually see these rivers evulsing and things? Unfortunately, no. And we and a lot of it could be that we just don't have the rev- resolution to be able to right, see Right, yeah. And, okay. you know, we can, you know, look at kind of like the drainage area and try to look at the size of the meander and the width and, and work out the flow rates. And, you know, it comes out to a fairly impressive amount of flow, you know. Right. Um, so we kind of think of the idea that Titan is fairly static until stuff happens. So ah. and it may be like a big sudden event, like some of the dunes. We don't think the dunes are moving all the time. The global circulation model suggests that, you know, they don't really seem to have the winds that would be able to, to kick the dunes up very often. And a lot of the models suggest that maybe the dunes go the wrong way than they actually do. But one of the ideas is that you could have these very large methane, you know, storms that basically bubble up and then they hit some of the higher altitude winds and bring those down to the surface and those are moving in the right direction and with the right speed to be able to move the the sand dunes uh, very quickly and do all of that you know that geophysical work and then that ends and that's pretty much everything stops and stays frozen until the next big event comes along so it's like all catastrophism no uniformitarianism yes very much. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah. really interesting. Okay, and yeah, and we whole... saw some examples of that with these storms as well, where we saw, you know, boom, this huge amount of, of landscape just getting wet, and then poof, it dries away, and then that's it, nothing much happening in between. So I'm going to say this is like rocking the cores of my geological foundation because you know that's these are the exact things that we talk about when we talk about uniformitarianism. Those things being gradual, we talk about erosion and rivers and everything like that that's the uniformitarianism part dunes would be in that too and you're saying that's not how that works here and that is so interesting (laughs) well i think the thing that's that gets you is that you're you know you're out in the outer solar system it's really cold out there right so you don't have a lot of energy to play with so i always kind of think of it as like meth as titan just kind of sits there slowly simmering and then all of a sudden it just finally gets up enough energy and it just like totally cuts loose and then it goes back to needing to rest up a little bit (laughs) this is extraordinary Hmm. interesting 
So uh, I think the hardest question that we've asked all of our guests <laughs> is if you could travel to your favorite place, in your case on Titan, yeah. and live there for a month, what would you do and where would you go? So I would love to go back to these huge, there's these uh, labyrinth terrains. That was what kind of got me into Titan in the first place. But there are these very large plateaus that are really dissected. They look almost exactly like the Colorado Plateau in a lot of different places. Uh, or some other areas that are fascinating, like the Bungle Bungles of Western Australia or some of the areas in Guangxi Province in China. So these really neat, dramatic landscapes. And, you know, you have, like the Colorado Plateau, you have the geologic history contained in the layers. You know, you have the sand grains, you know, the direction that maybe dunes might have, you know, marched across, seen by the cross bedding, um, different layers, you know, the, the, the history of fluvial dissection from conglomerate and placement and all that sort of stuff. But the thing that you've also got with Titan is you have the full story of the organic chemistry um, production being recorded in these layers as well. So the mix of the different molecules that was made in the upper atmosphere and what actually got delivered and then processed to the surface. So it's like a history that we would see in the Colorado Plateau, which, you know, we go to the Grand Canyon, it's like a really cool story. But take that and then add in the whole atmospheric production and potential for life because of all these chemicals, and you've got a really neat science story just sitting there waiting to be discovered and, and re revealed. So it would, it would be just an absolute blast to be there walking around with like a full lab that would be able to analyze just everything. It'd be cool. Uh -huh. So you would that... make a master strat column. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it would be great. That's so cool to think about it being precipitated directly from the atmosphere, too. You know, like it's an atmospheric history in the Well, it's even cooler like... than just being delivered from the atmosphere. So when we looked at the Huygens site, right, that was one of the cool things that we didn't see is we didn't see like these huge piles of, of snow covering everything. So we mm -hmm. saw like, you know, different materials. We saw like the cobbles and we saw sands. So that's telling us that geologic processing on Titan happens faster than just normal atmospheric burial. So you've got yeah. the whole story of atmospheric production, um, delivery to the surface, and then all of this conversion over on the surface from all these geological and maybe even chemical processes and then you have the regular geological story of emplacement. Way cool. Yeah, that's super neat. <laughs> I knew I loved Titan. It's so cool. <laughs> so, Mike, are there any other cool things about Titan that we didn't touch on that you'd like to add? Whew. Wow. So, uh, well, there's one. So we talk <laughs> a lot about the, the geological processes on Titan. And there's one that we've recently discovered and is, has been published now, so we can talk about it. Um, is we have these, you know, karst-looking sinkhole lakes up in the north. Okay, that's cool. Very interesting. Um, but the lakes seem to have a wall around them of a couple hundred meters. Wow. And the lakes look like they've undergone scarp retreat, and then the wall is always kind of there. And it's not all the way around every lake, but it's around a lot of them, and it's mostly around, it's like a partial, um, we call it like a, a rim, raised rim around the lake. And it's a lot. And it's, and it's actually something that's completely puzzling us. We, we see these structures. Um, we did some analysis. We saw them in altimetry. We went back and we looked at the radar data. 
And you could see kind of like a, a bright dark pairing from the way that the radar beam interacted with the surface. So we know that, yeah, we can see it and it's, and it's there. And it's this wall that seems to be able to move and retreat as the scarp of the lake retreats as well. And we have no idea how these things are being constructed or even what they're made out of because they're very thin and small. And we really don't have spectral resolution to figure those things out yet. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So 200 <laughs> meter moving walls. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like you've got job security. Oh for yeah. A while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt. Way to pick a way to pick a good satellite to work on. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's actually kind of fun if you think about it. If you're if you're going to the Earth, right? Um, if you had one mission that could go land on the Earth, where would you go to be able to figure out the whole story? <laughs> Uh, right. <laughs> Do you land on the white stuff? Do you land on the brown stuff, the green stuff, or the blue stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. – I don't like to think about it like that, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got you to pick a place to go somewhere. So I think, you know, we, we've been trying to really think out how you would do Titan exploration to figure out all the mysteries that you have. And, and it, it really is a place where you could do a lot of different missions in a lot of different locations to try to figure out you know, all of these different questions that we have. You have the questions up in the lakes. You have understanding the synthesis in the atmosphere because, I mean, that is a really big story right there. And then you have, you know, the history of the dunes, how these planes are forming, the labyrinths, and then, you know, how would you get down to that subsurface ocean to look for life? So there's a huge number of, of investigations and mysteries that we have at Titan, and it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to be a really great mystery for a long time, which is cool. Absolutely. So if if folks want to keep up with you and your work or have any questions, how can they get a hold of you on the internet? Sure. Follow me on Twitter, at uh, Mike underscore Malaska. All in. All right. We will link that into the show notes. And one final question was, if there's somebody listening that wants to get into planetary science, be it early career or late career, is there any advice that you would give them? Yes. Go, some, go to conferences, volunteer, um, look for citizen science projects, working with the university, read up on stuff. Um, there's, it, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, there's a huge number of missions that have been asking for outreach. I know for sure that the Juno mission, for example, has done a great job of recruiting amateur, I, I don't like to use the word amateur, but the volunteer enthusiasts um, for doing observations of Jupiter. And those have been just really critical to helping understand that the, the mission and understand the, the context of the, the science that they're, they're getting. So there's a lot of stuff out there and just look for the sites because there's a lot of stuff available. Awesome. All right, great. Well, thank you for taking the time to join us. It's cool. been a lot of fun. Cool, thank you very much, appreciate it. Well, Shannon, I think, you know, we found our uh, our next home. <laughs> I can't wait. No pressure suits or anything. Drones flying around everywhere. Need some lasers and high-speed photography, and we'll be on fire. People <laughs> flying around everywhere. Oh, that yeah, that too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Titan would be an interesting place, but now we're going to switch gears totally and move to Fun Paper Friday. Yay! this is a total switching of gears I mean, we don't know a lot about titans you know plate tectonic situations so we may need what we're going to talk about in this fun paper when we live there it's true 
We might. So this is, uh, we're, we're going to mostly talk about the uh, news and views article from Nature about this, uh, but it actually does, of course, reference a paper by DeVries et al. that mm-hmm. came out in Nature recently, and it's about mm-hmm. using machine learning to improve forecasts of aftershock locations. Uh, so just in this little um, news and views article about this paper, I guess... I thought you seismologists had your crap together more. (laughs) (laughs) But it seems that I learned a lot of things I didn't know, which was how we're still really bad at predicting earthquakes. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, for areas of aftershocks, we sort of have ideas of what's going to be in this part or this part of the geographic area because of something called the Coulomb stress change. Right. And so that's looking at actually when an earthquake happens, how it affects the stress regime in the surrounding areas, right? Yeah. So the earthquake happens and some places around the fault get stressed more and some places have stress uh, relieved off of them Mm -hmm. because of the movement of the rock. Right. And so you can use that and say, okay, so this earthquake happened, but we're actually sort of charting up a fault over here. So that's probably where an aftershock's going to originate. Is that how that goes? Uh, yeah, pretty much. And, you know, orientations come into play a lot here because it's all about how does the stress resolve onto these other faults. Right. So if you know the orientation of the other faults and the orientation of the fault that slipped, uh, then you can get an idea of where you think aftershocks might occur. But it's really dependent on things like, well, what do we think the slip distribution was on the main fault? And I didn't realize that these, and this was referenced in this paper, um, I didn't realize that those calculations were so varying between researchers. Oh, yeah. I mean, you yeah. can model <laughs> the, the size of the patch that slipped, the depth, how you fit exactly the, the seismological and GPS observations. It's... It's pretty non-unique. I mean, we can get an idea of roughly what the slip was and roughly what the slip distribution was, and everybody will roughly agree. But the details are what can matter for where aftershocks are going to happen. Well, right, exactly, because at the front of this article, they have a picture of um, the 2011 Christchurch earthquake and said, you know, if people remember this, a bunch of the aftershocks were more damaging than the, you know, the primary earthquake. Right. And so in this paper... They've tried to use machine learning, which is, of course, the super hot buzzword of everything right now. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, to try to predict where the aftershocks are, and they see that it actually works pretty well. But, John, it also says statistics work better than physics at figuring out where these aftershocks are. <laughs> that was crazy. <laughs> yeah, and as, actually, that makes a lot of seismologists kind of uneasy. Uh, you think? <laughs> Uh, so we're just using, just in quotes, uh, <laughs> statistics about past events to predict the future events. But so here's my argument of, yes, we don't understand the physics, but the statistics give us a way to provide useful outputs without having to understand all the physics. Not saying that we shouldn't, but right now we don't. And this is a good tool to bridge that gap. Right. That's true. And it said that they're having some success at doing that, correct? At, at bridging or at marrying sort of the statistics and the physics using this machine learning approach. 
Yeah, and it is interesting because machine learning or even just things that are simple as you know, principal component analysis on data sets, they can often point you to things that you didn't think would be important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, it reminds me of uh, talking to somebody who had done a, a project a while back, you know, probably 10 or 20 years ago now, uh, just taking a bunch of parameters about the atmosphere, like pressures at different heights and uh, dew points, it just as much data as they could grab mm-hmm. and throwing it into a big spreadsheet and saying, which one of these things, if I had only one index to look at, which one of these things would be the most predictive of tornado productivity? Oh, interesting. And in this area. And it turned out to be some random thing, like, you know, 500 millibar height at something. Like, oh, like I mean, 12 hours or something like that yeah. beforehand. <laughs> but statistically, that was the most predictive thing. Well. Does it say anything about the physics? Maybe. Are we going to understand it? Probably not. This is really interesting. This is kind of cool to to use statistics to then measure as, you know, hey, this is something we haven't found out about, you know, or maybe maybe it's not, but it could be. And it's sort of, you can use that statistical analysis to drive future research. Yeah. And we definitely have to talk about machine learning at some point. Uh, yeah. Probably no, I'm somebody good. That knows more d- about it. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, that yeah, that was my point. But you know, it's it's here to stay, man. And there are so many jobs that are opening up in data analysis and management, and just you know these informational jobs. And that's definitely more than a buzzword because lots of people are asking for those kinds of graduates so it's turning into a big deal oh one of my coworkers showed me a comic while we were traveling uh that was somebody stranded on an island and they'd spelled out help with rocks on the beach and nobody was coming and so they changed it and spelled out i know machine learning and it showed a <laughs> helicopter three planes and two boats heading towards the beach <laughs> i'm totally ripping that off for my class <laughs> Uh, it's and i've got a book on it i've been playing a little bit here and there with it and actually did my senior thesis back at ou on it Uh, Mm -hmm. but so much has changed since then Uh, yeah i I mean i I was hand coding reverse propagation of very basic neural networks and now what i did in a few months could be done with scikit-learn in you know Uh, half an hour oh sucks getting Uh, old doesn't it (laughs) yeah but it's uh it's something that i really want to look at and i've even been looking at it some for doing uh, like automated picking of events and time series where before we would have all these tricks like STA, LTA mm-hmm. algorithms and things in seismology where really if you get machine learning algorithms to know what an earthquake looks like, they do a pretty good job at picking it out of the time series. Yeah, that's awesome. Hmm. Very interesting. And we should definitely follow up on this. Yeah. So machine learning making aftershock prediction better, but we don't know why. Done. Is the summary. (laughs) Well, if you've done machine learning on your own data set and have something interesting to show for it, we would love to hear from you. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Yeah, please email us uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Uh, we're hanging out in the Slack chat room on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. And if that is something you would like to help us support to run costs of our show, uh, you can find us patreon.com slash don't panic geo. 
And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funders.